Well, let's continue in our worship as we open God's Word this morning. And we are going to behold a wondrous mystery here in Ephesians chapter 3. I invite you to turn uh, to Ephesians 3, where we will start with verses 1 through 7 today. And if you haven't, uh, you haven't been with us or not with us in a while, we are making our way through Ephesians in an expository series. The goal of, of expositional sermon is for me to read the text, then for me to explain the text, and then for me to apply the text. And hopefully the, in your heart as well, the Spirit will be applying that text if you're not resisting, if you're not living a life of sin, but you want to love God's Word and take it in, and then the Spirit will work on that in your heart. And so what I want to do this morning is look at the mystery of Christ that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. And first, I just want to read it to you. But you might recall that I said the first three chapters of Ephesians is doctrine. This is where Paul is laying the foundation for the application that will come in the second half of uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6. So we enter now into this third and final chapter of the doctrinal section. And it's not usually people's favorite chapter in Ephesians. It is very uh, challenging. Even in English, the grammar you'll see is very challenging. I think even more so in the original Greek as I was translating it. And it is teaching us something important though. Something important. The mystery. The mystery that has led to the church. So let me read this to you. And I think you'll see uh, how important this is. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power." Let's bow once again and ask for the Lord's help in this. Lord, I pray that you would give us your grace, that you would grant us even a greater measure of your grace this morning. That those who are believing in Christ as Savior today would be edified by this. That this revelation Paul wants believers to know would build us up in the faith, would help us to be more unified as one body. I pray also, Lord, that you would be glorified most of all, that you would be glorified by the preaching of your word. And I pray, Lord, that sinners, that unbelievers, that they would be convicted over their sin and they would turn to Christ through this message of the gospel. Help me as the preacher, help my voice to stay strong, help the message to be clear. And I pray that the listeners would be attentive, would look to the scriptures to see what is there and seek to apply it in their life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not long after we come into the world as little ones, as newborns, it's not too many years into being uh, alive that we think we're entitled to everything. If you've had kids, you know that. Grandkids, you know yourself that you often feel entitled. Certainly in, in America, uh, we think 
we're entitled to anything that we want. It can be gotten if we just work hard enough, if we just do things right, if we just sort of give a few token prayers or thoughts to a higher being in America today. We think that we're entitled to certain things, success and money and happiness. But the Bible says that although we're created in the image and likeness of God, since the fall of Adam, we're only entitled to one thing, it says, wrath. We're only entitled to God's wrath because we are sinners. That's a promise throughout Scripture that those who follow the path of sin and don't turn away from it and turn to God will suffer eternal wrath. That's clear. That's something we often forget today, that God's Word says that, but it is there. So we don't deserve the good things. We don't deserve the good things in life, uh, much less do we deserve eternal salvation from the wrath to come. We don't. Yet God has provided that. God has given that. God has made a way of salvation through His grace. If we have faith in Christ, if we have faith in Christ, we can be saved. And then those promises and things that God said He would give to His people become ours. We really aren't deserving even then, but Christ is deserving. He's deserving of all those things. He never sinned. He never came under the wrath of God for His sin but he paid the price for our sin. Before Christ came, though, before Christ came, Gentiles, that's 99, probably maybe 100% of us here today, we had no knowledge of that gospel. We had no knowledge as a Gentile people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jews were promised things, and if, if they trusted in God and looked forward to the coming Messiah, that they could get all of these blessings that God promised, all of these things he said he would deliver to the Jewish people if they followed God. But not Gentiles. Not Gentiles. But when, when Christ came, that changed everything. Before then, Gentiles were without Christ. They were without God in the world, Paul just said in chapter 2. And now that Christ has come and Paul is taking that gospel out and it's all the way down 2,000 years later till today, we have access to God through Christ and it's proclaimed in this message called the gospel. And so as Gentiles, we ought to be thankful. We now, as believing Gentiles, have a full participation in the promises, the covenants, the blessings that God promised to Israel. We're sharers. We are fellow brothers and sisters in the church, Gentiles and believing Jews, of course, in the church together with Christ. Well, today, Paul is going to describe those very things. And he's been on that subject. If you want to look back in chapter 2, he, he told us that we were dead in our transgressions. In, in chapter 2, verse 1, just to give you some context of where we've come from here, he said we're dead. Individually, you are dead. Dead means you can't do anything. Dead means you can't move towards God. You're a dead person. You're, you're laying on the ground, really at the bottom of the ocean, with everything piled on top of you, rotting. Some people say, you know, you're, you're just like sort of drowning and all we need to do is reach out to the lifesaver. No, Paul says you're dead at the bottom of the ocean with no hope at all. And then Christ saves you. Then Christ saves you, verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That's individually. Then Paul goes into 11 on, he goes on to say, 
Therefore, remember. Now that you're in Christ, remember before, because he's talking to the Ephesians, you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called the uncircumcision. You were, you were without Christ, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And even if you go back to chapter 1, he begins there to tell us how God has worked to save his people. He talks about how God chose, God elected in chapter 1. He predestined. And then, then he sent the Son to redeem those whom he's predestined. And then he sealed those people who are saved, who are redeemed. He sealed them in the Holy Spirit. So what has Paul taught us? Well, he's taught us how salvation comes about. He's, he's taught us that we ought to look back and consider what God has done in our lives. And not just individually, but even as a, as a culture, as a people. If we're not Jewish, wow, what has God done? He's done a lot for the Jews, and that's amazing. But if you're a Gentile, wow, he has done so much to save us. He has done so much to love us. And that's what Paul's been teaching them from the very beginning of Ephesians. Well, here in this passage today, he's continuing with this idea of Jew and Gentile being one in Christ, one in the church. And so in this passage here today that I read to you, Paul tells us how that revelation of the message came to him and how God chose Paul to bear that message to the world. That's important. Now, most of us accept the Bible as inerrant. You should, because it is without error. It is authoritative. But how do we know it's authoritative? Well, one reason we know is because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that it is true. But another way is we can trace it back to God's representatives, the apostles in the New Testament. We can trace every book of the Bible back to an apostle or back to someone who worked under an apostle, like Mark or Luke. And so this is important. Paul is establishing right here in this section, chapter 3, 1 through 7, who he is, what God has given him to do, and how it should impact them in that Ephesian church, how it should impact us today in our church. This is some deep theology in this section. Like I said, this isn't the, most people's favorite chapter of the Bible. This is deep doctrine about the church, about the mystery, about the revelation given to Paul. But it's vital. It's in Scripture. It's in Ephesians. We've got to study it and I think after we're done today, you'll have hopefully, hopefully some more insight into what Paul's saying. And hopefully your, your ecclesiology, your theology of the church will be greater. And also your, your theology of God's grace will be greater. So I've got four points in the sermon. And then I've got some application points for you after we're done with the text here. First of all, I want you to see the stewardship of the mystery. So we're looking at the mystery of Christ in this passage. And Paul starts off by saying that he is a steward of that mystery. He, first of all, begins in verse 1 by saying a prayer. He's going to pray. But if you know Paul and you've read his letters, he often stops in the middle of what he's doing and goes off and he just begins to worship God. Sometimes he's teaching and he goes off into prayer. Sometimes he starts a prayer like here. And then he stops to go off into this 
exposition of the theology of the mystery of Christ. And that's what he does. In verse 1, he's starting a prayer. And then by the end of verse 1, you probably have a little dash there, or a large dash called an M-dash. And that means he's broken off from that topic, and he started something different. And he won't come back to the prayer until verse 14. So 2 through 13 is all about Paul sort of opening up this revelation that he got and why he got it and what he's doing with it. And then he continues with his prayer in verse 14, starting again for this reason. So the stewardship of the mystery here. First of all, let's just begin in verse 1. For this reason, he's referring back to what he just taught on. He just finished teaching in chapter 2 about how we're all one in Christ, Jew and Gentile, together in one body. And he says, for that reason, because of that, because of that, I've got something else to say to you. I've got a prayer that I want to pray. And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, he's making it very personal here. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, he's a prisoner of the Roman Empire. Jesus is not physically there putting chains on him. He's a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting trial. But he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Because he's looking at God's sovereignty, saying, God has put me here for a reason. Christ has put me here for a reason. He sees everything he does as for Christ. He, he, he's living for Christ. He's the one who said to live as Christ in Philippians. And to die is gain. But as long as he's taking breath, he's going to live for Christ. And he's a prisoner of Christ. Forget the Roman Empire. He's a prisoner of Christ. Christ has put him there. And he's there in prison because God wants him to be there in prison. That's exactly why Paul's there. Everything happens in your life for a reason, Paul says. And I'm here in prison for a reason. I'm chained for a reason. That's the complete opposite of so much we hear today. We hear that you're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous. And if you have enough faith, nothing bad will happen to you. Well, the Apostle Paul is a complete antithesis to that theology, isn't he? You know where he goes to in in the Corinthians? He talks about how many times he's been beaten and shipwrecked and almost killed and and, and thrown out of the city and, and all these things he's gone through. That's not prosperity gospel that's suffering for Christ's sake. That's suffering for Christ's sake. Jesus is a good example. Jesus never sinned. What happened to him? They killed him on the cross because they hated him. That was all in God's plan. But the point I'm trying to make is, look, we ought not to think in life that everything God does in our lives and for us is going to be health, wealth, and prosperity. Sometimes it will be suffering. Sometimes it will be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But it's for a purpose. Look, he says here, it's for the sake of you Gentiles. He's suffering for their sake. He's suffering for the Ephesians, all the other people that he started churches, all the other letters that he'll write to those churches. Those people, he says, I'm suffering for. I'm here so they could hear the gospel. Paul's in prison because he preached the gospel to Gentiles. That's what got him arrested in the first place. If you read through Acts 27 and 28, it covers this. Paul's accused of taking a Gentile into the temple. So the Jews have a riot, basically. The Romans come in. They, they save Paul from the Jews, but 
Then they want to try Paul for disrupting things and causing problems. Paul appeals to the emperor, and he ends up spending four years in prison waiting for his trial. Now, eventually, I think he's let out. He's let out. It doesn't say that in Acts, but it says after two years. Uh, he's been there two years. So he spends two years in Caesarea waiting to get sent to Rome, two years in Rome. He's in prison for four years as a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. So while he's in Rome, he writes to the Ephesians, and he tells them, and in the Philippians as well, and, and Colossians, and he tells them, I'm, I'm here for a reason. It's for you guys. And I want to write this letter to encourage you. These chains, they're nothing, he says. I, I'm here for you. I'm here to proclaim the truth to you. And he's suffering for them so they can hear the truth of salvation found only in Christ. He's willing to be in chains and even go to die so they can hear the gospel. I wonder how many of us would personally suffer so that somebody else could hear the gospel. Most of us have never had to really suffer. We might lose some family members. That's the type of suffering. We, might, we could lose our jobs. It's getting close to some of that uh, in, in certain areas of the job market because we love Christ and will proclaim him. But most of us have not suffered to this level. And I wonder how many of us would go through it so that others could hear the gospel. Then in verse 2 he says, if indeed you have heard. He's not saying here that I'm uncertain whether you ever heard the gospel. He's not saying, like he says in other places, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's better, I think, translated like the ESV does, assuming you've heard. Or even a better translation would be, surely you've heard. Surely you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. There's been a lot of believers since Paul left in Ephesus. It's been a few years, maybe five, maybe six years at the most. And He doesn't know who's come to faith there, and maybe they've heard about him, and maybe they haven't, but he's assuming they have heard about the Apostle Paul. And so as he writes this letter, he says, surely, surely you've heard of of what God has given me. He's given me a stewardship. Stewardship means responsibility. If you look up this word in the Greek, it's a, a person responsible for a household or an estate. And they had to manage it well, or the master would get very angry with them. And Jesus says some parables about that. Uh, it talks about the slaves and the master. And, and the steward might be a slave or it could be a free man that's hired, but he is to manage the household well or the business or the farm well. And Paul's now applying this idea to what God has given him, which is an administration of the gospel. God in his grace has chosen Paul to manage, to administrate as an apostle, the gospel of Christ. He's been given a commission. He's been entrusted with the gospel to take it to the Gentiles. God's sovereignly done this. God didn't sit down with Paul and sort of do a business deal. He didn't say, Paul, would you like to have all these great things and all these sufferings as well? No. Paul was an unbeliever. Paul was killing Christians. Jesus showed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? Paul says, who are you, Lord? Instantly, instantly, he has faith. His eyes, of course, are blinded for a bit, but then they're eventually removed, and he's taken away to be trained. He says, even by Christ in the desert, he's trained for some years. Who knows what Jesus said to him in that time, but the point he's making is, 
Paul was appointed by Christ. He was appointed. An apostle has to be appointed by Christ, by the resurrected Christ. That's one of the qualifications I mentioned last week. You can't just call yourself an apostle. You have to be appointed by Christ. You have to be uh, in the presence of the resurrected Christ, like the 12 and Paul. And you have to do wonders and miracles, true wonders and miracles. Those are the signs of an apostle. So he's been commissioned, and, and he has a great responsibility to manage, to administrate, to make sure that the gospel of grace goes out to the Gentiles. That's his job description, a steward of God's grace. He says it like this in Colossians 1, verse 25, of this church. I was made a minister or a servant according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Christ had told Paul that he was to go out and administrate the grace of God to the Gentiles. That's your job, Paul. You go and you take it and you are a steward. You have it, now give it to others and plant churches and build them up in the faith. He'll come to that in the next chapter of Ephesians. But what's he managing? What's really his responsibility? It says here, God's grace. He's a steward of God's grace. That, that through faith in Christ, one can receive the grace of God. What is grace? Well, it's unmerited favor. It means you didn't deserve it. You can never say, I deserve God's grace. Because the definition of grace is unmerited favor. But it's not just unmerited favor given to someone. It's unmerited favor given to someone who deserves the opposite. It's someone who's serving a life sentence in jail Uh, on death row and is going to eventually be punished with death and the judge gets down from his bench and he comes and he takes your place in that prison and dies you are set free you get to go home you get to have the judge's possessions that's what christ did for us that's grace it's not just unmerited favor it's unmerited favor with with all the blessings fulfilling what we deserved which was wrath we deserved wrath and punishment Christ came, he fulfilled that wrath for us, and he blessed us with eternal salvation. Well, that's what Paul is stewarding. That's his stewardship. He doesn't own God's grace, but he's responsible for making sure it gets to the Gentiles. That's what he's doing. And it says in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He didn't waste the grace of God on his life. God saved him, God gave him his grace, and God told him to go. And he went, and he didn't waste it. He labored, he says, more than any of them. I worked harder than any of them, and he's not boasting. He's being honest. God's grace had changed him, and he was going to tell others, because that's what God had called him to do. When I was in seminary, we had this one professor. I, I loved him, and he, he was hard, though. He was my Hebrew professor. And he used to remind us almost every week, God has given you men a stewardship. And you have to learn this so you can properly exegete the text and explain the passage and preach it. This is a stewardship, he said. This is something God has entrusted to you. It's something precious. And so he said, don't mess it up. Learn the Hebrew, learn the Greek, learn the theology, learn how to preach, learn the Bible, because it's, it's a stewardship. Well, that's the stewardship of the mystery. We haven't even gotten to what mystery is yet, but that's coming in number two here. Number two, 
the knowledge of the mystery. So Paul's supposed to manage and administrate God's grace and the gospel. But now Paul calls that a mystery. In verses 3 through 5, there's the knowledge of the mystery that he wants them to have. And they really already heard it. They just don't realize it. They've been reading it or out loud hearing it. If they're reading it out loud in the church, they've been hearing it in chapters 1 and 2. Starts off in verse 3. That, so here, here it is. I'm going to tell you what the message was that I'm supposed to bring to the Gentiles. That by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, God had revealed something to Paul. Paul's an apostle. He's been commissioned directly by Christ. Christ has given him a message. Paul, I think, had the gift of prophecy, as all the apostles did. That's why they could write scripture. That's why they could say this is God speaking directly through them. And Paul says, I've, I've had a revelation. I've had something that was hidden before revealed to me. And it's called the mystery. God had miraculously revealed it to him. Now, as soon as the Ephesians were reading and they saw that word mystery, they would have remembered their pagan past. Remember, these are all pagans, and who are they worshiping? The false goddess Diana, or Artemis. Huge temple in Ephesus. One of the wonders of the ancient world. People came from all around, and they practiced these different mystery religions. A mystery religion meant that everything was a secret, and you couldn't know the secrets of that religion and how to control things in the world and how to do magic and how to do mystical things unless you join. And then you became an initiate, and then they would tell you the secrets of the mystery religions. But, Paul says here, he uses the same word, and I think he's pointing really back to to Daniel. Remember how Daniel, it was revealed to him, the king's dream? King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He called all the diviners and mystics and everybody, magicians in his kingdom. They're supposed to know the mysteries. They knew nothing about the dream. But Daniel did, because who? God revealed the mystery to him. And so Paul's using this language here because it was revealed to him. But also, they would have thought, yeah, this is the one true God who's given us a mystery that's now been revealed. It's not like the mystery religion. The the mystery religions, the cults, the mystics of today want to bring you in. And they want to tell you the secrets of witchcraft. you got Wiccans growing at a very fast pace in America. They want to tell you the secrets once you've come in and been initiated. But this mystery we're about to find out has been revealed to the whole world. It's not just believers. Anyone can open their Bibles and read of God's mysteries here. It's not a mystery religion. It's not a pagan religion that's all secretive behind closed doors. This is proclaimed to the whole world, the gospel to the whole world. Well, Paul says that this mystery, he's already written before in brief. You see that in the text? And you might think that's another letter that he wrote to them, but it's not. He's saying that he's already been talking about it before he's talked about it here. He's already been talking about it before in the letter. It's written in a very brief form. He's saying, I've been talking about this mystery all along, and you didn't know it. Back in 1.9, He mentioned that God has made known the mystery of his will. 
God's will is hidden until he reveals it. And in chapter 1, Paul says, and in, in predestining and sending Christ as a redeemer, God has revealed his will. How do you know God's will for your life? Well, he reveals it in Scripture or in providence, in history, in time. He doesn't speak directly to you today. But where do you look for God's will? In Scripture. Where does God speak to you today? In Scripture. I love that little the meme that goes around where it says, speak to me, God, speak to me, God. And he's looking at the cloud and then his Bible sitting over here collecting dust on the shelf. God is speaking to us right here in his word. We're not an apostle. We're not a prophet. We're not hearing direct revelation from God. But Paul was because he was an apostle. He was a prophet. And he says, I've already been writing it to you. And he described in chapter 2 the plan of salvation for the Gentiles. How they could come in and be part of the blessing that will also go to believing Jews. So I've already written it to you in brief. Then in verse 4, we know what he's talking about here by referring to this. When you read, you can understand. So that's how we know he's written it in this letter. Not another letter. But he says, when you read... When you stand up in church and you read this letter I'm writing to you, when you read the book of Ephesians, because they didn't have a personal Bible. We're so blessed today. We have each of us a Bible, most of us many Bibles, many translations of Bibles, study Bibles. They didn't have that. Very expensive to get the Ephesian letter copied down. Had to hire somebody to do it. Had to be uh, done very carefully. It's the Word of God. And, and it, the paper, the, the papyrus to put it on was very expensive. It had to be brought up from Egypt and treated a certain way. So there were very few in the beginning that, that had copies. But this is the very first. It's the original. And Paul says, when you've read this, you'll understand. In other words, when you go back and read chapters 1 and 2 now, you'll understand that's the mystery I've been talking about. The mystery of Christ. The mystery of the gospel. Which clues us in, we ought to be reading and rereading our Bible so they make sense to us. This is a clue. He's put right in the middle of the, the, the Ephesian letter to go back and reread some of that. Because when you read it publicly, he says, You'll understand what I'm saying. You'll understand more about the mystery that I've been talking about. We need to read our Bibles to put it all things together, to connect the connections that God has put there, and to read the whole Bible. Too many Christians haven't read the whole Bible. I was a Christian too long myself before I read the whole Bible. Don't wait until you're 50, 60, 80 years old. And if you still haven't read it and you're 50, 60, 80 years old, read the whole Bible and reread it and reread it because the connections will continue to make sense. So Paul says, when you read it, you'll understand. You'll understand my insight. This is not his personal insight, but the insight God gave him into the mystery of Christ. Into something that is secret, but has now been revealed. You'll understand it as you do what? As you read the Bible. Not as you sit there waiting for some sort of vision, some sort of dream. But he says, as you read Scripture, you'll understand it. You'll understand what I'm saying about the mystery. It won't be a mystery like it has been for so long. Well, let's look at what the mystery is. You've heard me talk about it. I've already given you two headings. What is it? What is the mystery? Well, the mystery points to something that was hidden or a secret. It's now been revealed. It's now been made known. It's not the way we use it in the English, though. A mystery is what? Something that's mysterious. Something that's still hidden. 
But not to the Greek reader. Not in the Greek language. This word means something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. So if you give your, your child a present for Christmas or birthday, and you invite your friend from Greece to come over, when the present is wrapped, you, being an American, say, that's a mystery what's in there. What grandma got our kid, you know, that's a mystery. And then when it's open, it's no longer a mystery. The Greek person says it's a mystery once it's been opened and I see what's in there. Ah, oh, mystery. Mystery. It was once hidden, but now it's been revealed. Actually, the word in Greek is musterion. Mystery. So it is something that God had hidden for ages, but now has revealed through Paul, through the apostles, through Christ. Specifically, how Jews and Gentiles will come together in the body of Christ. What he's just been talking about. Chapter 2. That was a mystery. No one knew that before Christ came and told Paul, take that to the world. It was hidden. It was hidden to all but God during the Old Testament times. The Old Testament declared that Gentiles would be blessed. It did have quite a few verses. We've looked at them over the last few weeks. In Isaiah, in the prophets. That God would bless, in, in Genesis with Abraham, that God would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's offspring. The Gentiles would be blessed. But as far as they knew in the Old Testament, to be blessed by God, you had to become a Jew. You had to go to Israel. You had to live like the Jews. You had to practice the Mosaic law. You had to become like a Jew. Even though ethnically you could never become a Jew, you had to live like them. You had to live with them. So it was not revealed how Jew and Gentile would come together into one body without having to live like a Jew. That's new, Paul says. That's new. It's a mystery that's now been revealed. It's something hidden that's now been revealed. Jew and Gentile, one new man. The title of my sermon last week was The Church, God's New Creation. It's something new. It's not something old. People sometimes want to find the church in the Old Testament. It's not there because it's something new, Paul says. It's something new. He's, he's about to really back that up. Well, that's what the mystery that he's talking about here is. In, in 1 Corinthians 2.7, he says, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The apostles go out and they proclaim the gospel of Christ and how Gentiles can be saved. And that was hidden, but God knew it because he planned it. He planned it before the ages, before the world was created. Colossians, which is often parallel with Ephesians. Colossians 1.26. He talks about the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. It's now been revealed. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He wants them to know what's happened to them. And how God planned it all along. It wasn't God's plan B. Sometimes people are taught not only that God's a different God in the Old Testament. But that God came up with a plan B when Israel failed. The Old Testament ends. Israel failed, plan B. God's thinking, what should I do? Oh, I'll just choose the Gentiles. Paul says, no, that's a mystery that was hidden from ages past, but has now been revealed. It was always God's plan. 
And what is the summary of that? He said it's the mystery of what? Christ. It's the mystery of Christ. He's the only way that Jews and Gentiles could be brought together. Look back at chapter 2, verse 13. The Messiah was promised in the Old Testament, yes. And Gentiles could be blessed by God if they became like a Jew. But now, because of Christ, Gentiles can be brought together with believing Jews in the church. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, you Gentiles who were formerly far off, have been brought near, near to God by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The mystery, we can summarize it in one word. The mystery is Christ. Now we're going to expand on that in just a moment. Paul's going to talk more about this mystery, what it means for the Gentiles. But he just starts off saying it's the mystery of Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Wasn't the Messiah prophesied? Didn't I just preach a whole sermon on all these Old Testament verses right before Christmas on how the Old Testament points to Christ? Yes, but who's the Old Testament written to originally? The Jewish people. The Jewish people. And even they, Paul says, did not know how God would bring Jew and Gentile together as one new creation, as one new body, as the church. In other generations, it was not made known. No one knew it. No one knew it. Even the prophets, even God's prophets, he did not reveal that part of the picture to them. 1 Peter 1 talks about this. It says, as to salvation, the prophets who prophesied, that's the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied of the grace that would come, that would come to you, to the Gentiles. They made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person, who's this Messiah going to be? Who is he? When's he going to come? What person or time that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Messiah within them was indicating? So the prophets had the Spirit of Christ in them, and he was telling them to prophesy certain things. They knew there was a coming Messiah. And Peter goes on to say, as God, the Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You can learn a lot about Christ in the Old Testament, but you're not going to see exactly how Christ made believing Jews and believing Gentiles one new thing. And that's what Paul's saying. Other generations didn't know it. How blessed are we to know this? He's telling them so they'll know it, so they'll praise God and be thankful. This isn't one of those passages where you go home and you do 27 things from this passage to help you be a better Christian. That's important. This is where you go home and praise God that these things have been revealed and that you're on the other side of the cross so you could hear the gospel and be saved. But if you were born before the cross and you didn't live anywhere close to Israel, Paul says, be thankful. Praise God. Doctrine should bring about praise. People scared of doctrine. They think doctrine (laughs) doctrine divides. They're scared of doctrine, but doctrine should bring about praise. Doctrine should bring about holy living. Doctrine should bring about... Just a gratefulness to God for what he's done. So before in the Old Testament, a Gentile had to become a Jew, but not anymore. Now that that Christ has come, we don't have to become Jews and be circumcised and practice the Mosaic law. We don't have to go up to the temple and try to sit 
way outside of the temple in the court of Gentiles, and hopefully, you know, God will hear our prayers. No, Christ has come. He is the mystery. He has been revealed. And Paul says, through this message, in verse 5, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Last week, we looked at how the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. You don't lay a foundation more than once. You don't lay a foundation of a house twice. They came and they planted the church. And the message they took was the message of the gospel. This this mystery of how Gentiles and Jews could both be saved and be in the church together. There's not a Jewish church over here and then a Gentile church over here. We're one new man in Christ. And that was revealed to the apostles and the prophets by the Holy Spirit. Twelve apostles plus Paul plus the New Testament prophets were given a revelation by the Spirit. So that's the knowledge. That's, that's what the mystery is. But now he goes further and talks about the content. And we've already touched on the content, but he says in verse 6, the content of that mystery. Verse 6, to be specific. To be very clear so everyone knows what the mystery is. More Christians ought to read this verse right here because I've been in many Bible study situations where there's a lot of debate about what the mystery is and how it's just mysterious and we can't know it. Paul says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he just rattles off three, real quick, three blessings that make up this message, this gospel message about Christ. First of all, he says we can be fellow heirs. We will inherit what believing Jews were promised. Go back to chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That means we get to inherit what other people in the household get to inherit. Other sons get to inherit. We're adopted into the family. We're not of the line of Abraham, but we're grafted in, Paul says in Romans 11. We're brought in. We're given those same blessings promised to them. We're fellow heirs. Also, we're fellow members of the body. There's one body, the body of Christ. There's not different bodies of Christ. I know people... Say there are different bodies, different churches, different denominations. There's one true body of Christ, one true church. And having created that new man in Christ, that new humanity, we can be part of it now when we trust in Christ. We can be part of it. Every time somebody comes to Christ, they, they become part of that. Paul described it as a building in chapter 2, a holy temple of God that's being built up. And every one of us is a brick in that structure. Also, he says, fellow partakers of the promise. What's the content of the mystery? Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers of the promise. Now, he's referring back to Abraham. Abraham was promised what? His descendants will be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky, that he would have a land, and that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Through him. That's the Gentiles. Not every single person, but that the way they could come to God is through Abraham's descendant, Abraham's seed. That's Christ. Christ was a descendant of Abraham. So we're fellow partakers of that promise. We have a people now. We did not have a people before. We thought we did, but now we have a people. 
That's, that's better than our extended family on this earth. We have God's household. We have God's family. We have a coming kingdom. We have a land that we will be with Christ in, a nation, when Christ comes back. So that is the content of the mystery. And then lastly, before we look at application, Paul talks about being a servant, being a servant of the mystery. He comes back to himself now. He started in verse 1 talking about himself and and even in verse 2 about how God has blessed him with this commission. And now he's going to come back and talk about he is a servant, the servant of the mystery. Verse 7, of which I was made a minister. The word minister here is diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon from, the office of deacon. But he's not talking about the office of deacon here. He's just using it as the word servant. My translation says minister. It's probably better just to make it more general, servant. He is a servant, one who serves. Uh, he, it refers here to someone serving the gospel message, the mystery. What did Jesus tell all his disciples? Serve one another. Go to Mark chapter 10. If you can flip there uh, quickly. Mark 10. We're not an apostle, but in the same way we can be servants. Servants of Christ serving one another. Uh, Mark 10 and verse 42. Calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Same word. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Paul says, I've been, I've been made by God a servant of others to proclaim the gospel. I am serving others by proclaiming the gospel. You are serving others when you show the Bible to others, when you teach the Bible to others, when you quote scripture to others, when you disseminate biblical information to others, when you hand out a tract, when you send an email to somebody with a Bible verse, when you teach the Bible to others, when I preach the Bible to others, I'm a servant, a minister. That's where we get the the word minister for pastor, minister of the word. And he says, I was made this according to the gift of God's grace. Once again, he's returning to God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Paul's a servant only because of God. And he couldn't do it without God's grace. God God gave this ministry to Paul. That was in verses 1 and 2. But now he's saying, not only have I received grace in my salvation, in my commission, but I continue, he says, to receive God's grace as I do this job of serving the gospel to others. We need God's grace, not just the day you're saved, not just when Christ returns, but to do what God has told us in this life. And that's what Paul's saying here. We need God's grace to serve. If you're going to serve the word, especially Paul, because he's got to go out and plant churches and get almost killed by Gentiles. He's got to have God's grace and he's got to have God's power. It's only according to the grace and according to God's power. God's got to give him the power. Paul realizes he can't do it. I can't do it. There's many times where I don't think I can get up here and preach. My voice isn't going to go. 
I don't feel well. I'm dizzy. Uh, I just don't feel like I'm ready to proclaim God's word. But yet, God gives the power. God gives the grace. There are probably many times you don't feel like reading the Bible. You don't feel like praying. You don't feel like coming to church. If we ask God for his power, if we ask him for his grace, he can help us do that. He will help us do that. Well, Paul says he was made a minister. We can't claim that, though. We can't say we're apostles. We can't say we're prophets. Even a pastor of a church cannot say they did it themselves. God calls men to ministry. God calls them, not audibly. I did not hear God speak to me and say, go to master seminary, plant a church. No, in his word, it talks about proclaiming the gospel, teaching the word, preaching the word, and planting churches. But I felt a great desire to learn the word. I felt a great desire to go and learn more so that I could preach the word. And I have to have God's power and grace. I'm not an apostle. I'm not a prophet. And even as a pastor, it's God's grace and power that that sustains me. And you need to remember that if God has called you to it, meaning if he tells you in scripture to do something that's hard, because often it is, he will give you the power to accomplish it. And he will give you the gifts to accomplish it if he's really wanting you to do it. If, you're, if you feel a great desire to be a biblical counselor, he will give you the power to do that. Feel a great desire to get married and be a godly husband, be a godly wife, a parent. All the different ways also that you can serve in the church. He will give you what is needed to accomplish what he's called you to. Just make sure that he's actually put it in scripture what you're trying to do and that you're not coming up with it on your own. Well, let's talk quickly about applications. I've got three for you. I've asked Andrew to put them up on the screen. Three applications. It's been a lot of heavy doctrine here. So let's just bring it home and, and think about what it means for us. We're not Ephesians, but we are, most of us, Gentiles, and we've been converted. This applies directly to us. All of this doctrine should make us praise God, but it should also remind us, number one, that God is sovereign and in control. God's, God's sovereign and in control. He planned all this long before we ever showed up, long before Christ even came, before the world was created. Not only did he plan individually whom he would elect, but he planned that how Jew and Gentile would be brought together into the church, that that would be hidden until Christ came and gave that commission to Paul and then the other apostles followed as well. But mainly Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So God's in control. He, he's sovereignly fulfilling his plan in the world and nothing is going to throw him off. Nothing's going to surprise God. He's never learned anything new. You realize that? God's never learned anything new. He knows all things. He decrees all things. And so if he's done it for these huge things like the plan of redemption and world history, do you think God's sovereign over your own life? Do you think God has control in your life? He is sovereign, not only the big things, but the little things as well. And so Paul has been teaching us here that not only is God sovereign over everything that's ever happened in his plan of redemption, but also, Paul said, He's called each person in Christ to be holy. He's called each person in Christ to be part of the church. God is sovereign over all things. No matter what happens in our world today, no matter who gets elected president in the fall, no matter what happens in other countries that shoot missiles one day and then the next day back down, God is in control of all those things. And God's sovereignty, we, we love God's sovereignty here, but it's something we need to remember. Secondly, 
Christ is the center of God's plan. Christ is the center of God's plan. The, the gospel is about a person. It's a message about a person, who he is and what he did. Now, there's times in Christianity where we get to talking Christianese, and, and sometimes it's biblical Christianese. This is Christianese being a language that just Christians use. And we talk about grace. Um, we talk about election. And we talk about all these things, end times and creation. These are good things, and they're in the Bible. But remember, the gospel is about a person, Jesus Christ. And if he's not somehow connected to those things, we better be careful. We need to realize it's centered around Christ. He's the center of God's plan. There are whole denominations that have gone off track because all they talked about was God's grace, 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 and they forgot or intentionally stopped talking about Christ and his work on the cross. You can talk about God's grace and and totally leave out how we get God's grace through Christ on the cross. It's about a person. We have a lot of, of books in our church bookstore just on that. You need to know Christ, Christology, who he is and what he's done. And so Paul reminds us in this passage, it's the mystery of Christ. And then he goes on to the details of how that's fleshed out, Jew and Gentile in the church. And then lastly, for application number three, this is good news for all. It's good news for all, not, not, just, not just the Jews, Gentiles as well. Not just me, but you. And not just you, but your children and your friends and your family. This is good news for the Pharisees that you know. And it's good news for the drug addicts that you know, and the alcoholics that you know, and the adulterers that you know. It's good news for those who are weary, and it's good news for those who are hopeless. It's good news for the prideful. It's good news for the rebellious person or child in your house. It's good news for the person trying to work for their salvation. We have whole religions around here trying to work for their salvation. It's good news for the person who's rejected God completely, says they don't even believe in God. It's still good news for them. What's the good news? That Christ came, that, that through the cross we can have saving faith and be forgiven of our sin. If we trust in him, he will grant us repentance and faith and we'll be blessed eternally. Not just in this life, but eternally. And he's made us into one. Now we have a family. Instantly, you're saved, you have a family. The family of God, the household of God, Jew and Gentile together. This is good news. The mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the church. We can't separate the church from Christ. Is Christ's body to be separate from his head? It's not like, I love Christ, but I hate the church. That's kind of popular for the last 10 years or so. They're together, Paul says. In fact, you're part of the universal body, now go be part of a local body, is the assumption in Ephesians. Let's thank the Lord for that. Let's praise Him. Let's bow our heads now even and praise His name for doing such a thing and revealing so much of His will to us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us be the glory, but to You. You you are the God of all grace. You are the one who sent Christ for each person here today who believes, who has repented. You've taught us so much already through this book of Ephesians. But one main theme is your grace and how it's not earned. It can't be. And that even faith is not of ourselves, but it's granted to us through you. 
Lord, help us to love Christ even more. Help us to see the truth of this passage and love you and worship you more. Give you thanks and be grateful. Let us not turn from this sermon today and act like it doesn't matter. But let's remember your sovereignty and let us remember that we should praise you, that Christ is the center and this is good news. Let us be like Paul, that we're willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen.